Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm delighted to introduce my guest, Chanchal Dadlani, Associate Professor of Art and Architectural History at Wake Forest University. She's the author of the recently published book, From Stone to Paper, Architecture as History in the Late Mughal Empire. The book was described this way by Catherine Asher at the University of Minnesota, a fellow specialist in Indian art and architecture. Professor Chanchal Dadlani has produced the first full-length book on 18th-century Mughal architecture, whose buildings are often dismissed as unworthy of study. Her exciting and richly illustrated volume provides deep insight to this period, making us rethink our fundamental understandings of the later Mughals. Chanchal, thank you for finding time to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Before we get to some more specific questions, I'd love to know more about the origins of this project. In the quote I just read, Professor Asher describes it as a first and notes that the buildings you address are often dismissed as unworthy of study. So how did you realize that they are, in fact, entirely deserving of study, and how did you go about it? Absolutely. Um, So, yes, you're absolutely right, and Professor Asher is absolutely right in noting um, that this sort of um, group of buildings or this era really that I've talked about hasn't really um, been the focus of any concentrated study. The buildings were dismissed as kind of derivative and this entire period of Mughal history, the 18th century into the early 19th century had been talked about as a period of decline. Um, And so that definitely affected the way that people looked at the art and architecture. And so I'd kind of always been aware of that, but it was really the time that I spent in the field, in doing field work um, in Mughal North India that drew me to the project. When I first started doing my um, research and field work, of course, I went, you know, with the checklist of all the major monuments, the most famous of which is the Taj Mahal. Mm -hmm. But I also um, experienced other spaces in the major cities of uh, Mughal India. So this would be Delhi and and, um, Agra, for example. And I was really taken in by, say, small urban shrines, gardens with viewing pavilions, um, kind of urban thoroughfares, small neighborhood mosques. And I realized that these were incredibly vibrant spaces that really hadn't been written into the historical record um, and that um, were, in a sense, a key to kind of understanding how the built environment of the later Mughal Empire um, actually worked. So, for example, I remember this moment when I was in a very famous shrine called the Nizamuddin Berga or shrine, and this is in Delhi, um, and it is a shrine dedicated to a Sufi saint, and it's become a real pilgrimage center over the last several hundred years, and to this day, you can go to the shrine on Thursday evenings, and you can listen to Kavali, which is a 
sort of form of um, Sufi devotional music. And so I went to one of these um, performances or, or really kind of community gatherings. And I was sitting on the sort of cold marble floor. And this is a really sort of multi-sensorial experience in the shrine because you, um, you're listening to this really uh, joyous music. There's the scent of roses and incense in the air, and it's sort of a very packed space, so it's bustling. So there's a lot to take in visually as well. And um, about 10 feet away from me was the tomb of one of these later Mughal emperors, Muhammad Shah. Um, and I suddenly realized that it was a kind of very powerful thing for this later Mughal emperor to be buried not in a sort of grand monumental tomb like the Taj Mahal, but actually to be buried within the precincts of this saint shrine. And it made absolute sense in a way because um, when Muhammad Shah died and when he was buried, these kinds of spaces, these spaces outside of the palace walls and really outside of the um, imperial capital uh, city walls were really becoming more important, more trafficked, and this kind of allowed the later Mughal emperors to um, fold themselves into this kind of shifting um, social landscape and also to sort of draw on their spiritual um, affiliations as well. And they were doing all of this at a time when they were losing a lot of their political power. So in a sense, in the past, when scholars looked at this architecture, they almost looked at it formulaically, political loss equals architectural loss. But what I started to realize by being on the ground in India was that actually this political loss resulted in a way in kind of really creative solutions that were expressed through architecture. And so the Mughal emperors were actually trying to maintain their symbolic authority, their cultural authority, and they did it through um, architecture and they did it in, in new ways, not just by building huge monumental tombs. So it was really kind of being on the ground in India and kind of experiencing these smaller spaces that are actually difficult to talk about um, and write about in a sort of traditional architectural historical way that prompted me to pursue the project in this way. Mm -hmm. um, and I also was really interested in architectural representation. So I've always been interested in maps and plans. And there's a big body, a large body of architectural representation of Mughal buildings that starts to grow in the later 18th and 19th century. And I realized that um, in order to really understand what was happening during this period, one had to take into account not only the buildings on the ground, but also the buildings as they were represented in uh, paintings, um, drawings, and also in kind of textual description. So I kind of took these three lines of uh, exploration and I brought them together in this project. And which leads to uh, an uh, explanation of the title of the book, yes? From yes, stone absolutely. To paper. <laughs> from stone to paper. Um, from stone to paper, absolutely. And so the title talks about the fact that I'm dealing with these um, multiple uh, sort of forums for architectural expression, architecture on the ground, architecture on paper, and it's, it's paper in the form of architectural representation, but also textual description and poetry and, and travel narrative. And, you know, it's truly important to understand all these forms of expression to get at the larger architectural culture of the time. And are the representations that you address in the book always created after 
the building chronologically, or do you also include the the plans that were created before the construction of the buildings? Um, so this is a, a really interesting question because it actually opens up um, this kind of um, way that plans are used in, in the mobile context that might be kind of um, unusual or unfamiliar to those who are used to thinking about modern architecture. Um, and that is that there are actually no surviving Mughal plans, which is really astonishing because we know that the Mughals did use plans. There are paintings in which um, people are holding plans or holding grids, and we understand through the architecture itself and through some of the architectural records that we do have, the way that, that architecture was written about, that um, Mughal architecture often followed kind of modular forms of planning. There are these clear geometric relationships that are at play. Um, Mughal architects ended up writing treatises on mathematics and geometry, so we understand that architecture was a kind of learned and scientific pursuit, but we don't actually have Mughal plans. So a lot of the plans that I'm looking at are indeed commemorative. Um, and one of the groups of plans I looked at is from a collection called the Palais Indien, and it was uh, commissioned by an officer of the French East India Company uh, named Jean-Baptiste Gentil. And essentially, Gentil seems to have commissioned a set of 25 architectural studies, and these are both elevations of buildings from North India, mainly Mughal, but um, some other buildings as well as well as plans. And when you look at these plans and you look at other plans that are produced in North India and in the Eastern Islamic world as early as the 1400s and 1500s, you understand that these plans are clearly drawing on existing conventions. So this is not um, a set of a technique for rendering architecture that's kind of imported into India, but is really drawing on traditions of um, techniques that have been developed in the Eastern Islamic and North Indian world. But what this particular patron um, working for the French East India Company seems to be doing is working with local draftsmen, architects, painters, and asking them to use these existing techniques to form commemorative plans and elevations of buildings. And so the Palais Indien was perhaps the first major set of architectural representations that I looked at. And then I also looked at um, renderings of architecture or depictions of architecture in imperial Mughal manuscripts. And then I looked at how architecture was, again, depicted pictorially in a new type of um, text that really becomes popular in the 19th century, and that is the textual geography which is almost a biography of the city kind of told in spatial terms. So these are the various um, forums in which I looked at um, architectural depictions. Mm. And presumably the Palais Indien was uh, created f primarily for a French audience. Is that accurate? That's, right, that's right. So um, as I said, Gentil was an officer of the French East India Company, and there was a practice in the French colonies of sending representations of buildings back to um, France. And today, these are all kept at the, um, the French overseas archives, the Centre des Archives de Tremere, which um, really kind of records um, French activity overseas 
over the past um, century. It's a, it's a governmental archive. And so in a way, Gentil was sort of um, doing what he was supposed to do as a, as a French agent. And the other types of plans that are in this archive, for instance, are plans of fortifications all along the coasts of India, both French fortifications, but also British fortifications like the fort at, at then Madras, present-day Chennai, which was um, a British city, and the French had clearly kind of obtained these plans through um, through networks of knowledge in um, in South India, whether we're talking about espionage or just kind of shared information about technologies mm -hmm. of building forts. And so the Palaiandia is kind of part of this bigger group of architectural studies that really show the architecture of India, as well as kind of um, military studies that would help the French as they kind of battled the English for control on Indian soil. But Pictorially, they're so different from these other French studies, which are done by military engineers. And when you look at them, the palette is entirely different. The drafting technique is quite um, different. So something unusual is actually happening in the Palais Indien, which is that, again, this kind of local um, language for representing architecture, these um, existing techniques for representing architecture are being used, which is really what allowed me to kind of think about the Palaiandian in relation to an existing um, system of thinking about architecture that was current in the Mughal world. Mm. That is fascinating. And so in constructing the historical narrative on which this period of Mughal architecture that you discuss is based, what aspects or either specific aspects or categories of the past were particularly um, brought into focus both for domestic audiences and for the international audiences who um, were gaining access to the to the buildings through things like the Palaiandia? Sure, that's a great question. You know, as I um, looked at the archival material, so, you know, my work on the ground um, in India was absolutely complemented by work that I did in archives in India and in France and in England. And as I looked at the archival material, what I noticed was that whether I was looking at a group of architectural studies produced in the 18th century by draftsmen commissioned by a French East India Company officer, or I was looking at Mughal manuscript paintings, so paintings inserted into a royal Mughal manuscript in the 19th century, um, so in the following century, particular focus was emerging, and that was really a focus on the life and times of the great emperor Shah Jahan, who ruled in the Mughal Empire in, from 1628 um, to 58. So he's a 17th century emperor, and he is best known um, to us perhaps as the patron of the Taj Mahal. And I think this is happening for a few different reasons. So I think in part the Mughals are drawing on this real high point in the life of the empire in order to kind of bolster their cultural authority at a time when they are experiencing dramatic loss in terms of um, territory, political authority, military power, and, and economic power. 
as well. And so really kind of they're using their cultural authority um, in order to bolster their claims to rule. And at this point, what happens is they really kind of um, look to the past and specifically the reign of Shah Jahan as um, a source for that authority and really a source of kind of um, the greatness of the dynasty at large. So in a sense, this isn't, you know, um, a 19th century emperor just stretching back to the 17th century and saying, look, I have this ancestor who was great, and so I am too, but really saying I am part of this powerful dynasty and I should be on the throne by virtue of my membership in this dynasty. And what's fascinating for me is that architecture really comes to the center in this um, conversation in these efforts because Shah Jahan was the patron of the Mughal palace fortress in Delhi and in fact during his reign he built not only a new palace and fortress but a new city that was called Shah Jahanabad after himself and that became the Mughal capital at Delhi and this is the particular palace that the Mughal emperors will occupy um, in the intermittently in the 18th century and then in the 19th century. And in a sense, by the time the early 19th century rolls around, they have no um, authority beyond the city of Delhi and in a sense beyond even their palace walls, but they're kind of occupying the palace of Shah Jahan. So I think it's not a coincidence that they're occupying a palace built by Shah Jahan and kind of looking back to the reign of Shah Jahan. So it's not only the case that they're looking back and saying, okay, this is a real high point in the empire. And so we're going to claim the past glory of Shah Jahan. I think that this choice is also informed by the fact that they're performing so much of their authority on the um, sort of imperial stage that is these imperial buildings. And those buildings are so so closely associated with Shah Jahan. So I think it's kind of in this period that in the, you know, the late 18th and early 19th century that Shah Jahan specifically because of these architectural legacies, in addition to the strong political legacies, that there's so much attention kind of paid um, to this particular emperor and his reign in the architectural representation. Well, can you talk a little bit about ornamental experimentation um, and how that played into the approach um, taken to Mughal architecture in this time? That is, you know, if they're going to lengths to associate themselves with this moment of, in the past and this particular person, why not just make exact replicas? Why, why you know, make changes? Right. Um, so, you know, this is, um, this is a great question, again, because um, it is, um, it's another kind of dimension, right, to the book. So, I'm thinking about architecture not only in relation to um, the relationship between art and politics, but also kind of the agency of architects. You know, in Mughal studies, Mughal architectural studies, um, there's a tendency to really think in terms of imperial framework. So we think of the architecture of Shah Jahan or the architecture of Akbar, for example. And so rather than saying 17th century architecture, 18th century architecture, thinking about periodization in a different way, there's a tendency to kind of closely align um, architecture with emperors. And part of what happens is that the actual hands of the architect or the sculptor or the 
um, architectural painter kind of um, that story gets lost. And so the story of the Mughal architecture, the Mughal sculptor gets lost. Um, so there is the Taj Mahal, and then there's also another um, famous monument or infamous monument called the Bibi Kamakbara. It's in Aurangabad. It houses the remains of the wife of Aurangzeb, who was the son of Shah Jahan. So just to kind of map that out, you have Shah Jahan. <laughs> he builds the Taj Mahal for um, his wife, his deceased wife, Mumtaz Mahal. To go forward one generation, you have Shah Jahan's son, Aurangzeb. He, too, builds a tomb for his wife. Mm-hmm. And the way that the second tomb is talked about in, in guidebooks and in scholarly works alike is a, quote, poor man's Taj Mahal. Both mm-hmm. buildings are white. One is marble. One is stucco. Both are these kind of multi-level domed buildings surrounded by four minarets or tower-like structures. So there's a way in which one clearly speaks to the other. But the ornamental language in the Bibika Makbara really changes. And um, in the past, this has been talked about as a sign of kind of architectural decline, a loss in political power, a kind of loss in taste. But actually, if you think about the buildings um, in terms of architectural and artistic practice, you can understand them in a different way. So if you kind of put yourself in the mind of a Mughal architect, um, the architect of credited with the Taj Mahal is Ustad Ahmad. His son was an architect named Atta Allah, and he is actually the architect of the Bibika Makbara. So not only do we have father and son patrons, we have father and son architects. So there are these kind of strong connections between these buildings, both in terms of patronage, but also in terms of production. Now, if you're a Mughal architect working in the 18th century, you are adhering in a way to certain ideas about artistic practice and artistic merit. And in the Indo-Persian world, in the kind of Eastern Islamic world in North India, whether you're talking about Ottoman Turkey or Iran or um, the Rajput courts of North India, there is a great value placed on a kind of historically rooted architectural practice. And whether you're a painter or a poet or an architect, it is the case that you demonstrate your virtuosity by showing that you can master the past, that you know the canon and you know it well, such that you can replicate it, but that you also surpass what's in the canon by kind of altering it. So if you're a poet, you might write a poem in the same um, meter as a kind of canonical great, but you will alter the rhyme scheme. So if you're an architect, you will come along, you will Um, design and um, oversee and execute a structure that is almost kind of like a reimagined Taj Mahal. It's very important that you show that reference because that shows you have the mastery over the canonical past. But in order to show your true mastery, you have to kind of innovate, but within these constraints. So this is where the architectural experimentation comes in. And so what happens in the Bibika Makra is there's a new ornamental language and a new system of proportions in a way that's applied to the prior precedent that is the Taj Mahal. So, you know, why not make a copy 
because that's too easy and because you're only showing half of your skill if you do that. The idea of innovation is actually not predicated on a break with the past and doing something entirely new, but showing that you can work within the bounds of the past in order to do something new. Um, and it's very interesting because there's there's an actual Persian, well, Arabo-Persian word that's used for this, istiqbal, versus taklid, which is a um, a mindless copying. So there's a kind of thoughtful response versus a mindless copying. And this permeates artistic practice as a principle at this time. So actually, the referencing of the past is something that works for political reasons, but it's also motivated by um, artistic practices and priorities as well. And how do you, how do you, how would you characterize um, the ways that the Mughal identity that was established in the 18th century affects Indian architecture um, and or national identity today? Sure, you know. In, in part, why, part of why I became interested in this project as well is because, you know, when you think of India, you absolutely think about the Taj Mahal. Mm-hmm. And there are various reasons why we think of the Taj Mahal. And, um, you know, we can talk about those too, but we do think about the Taj Mahal. And so if you look at the Taj Mahal as an architectural historian, um, you look at its particular visual qualities. Again, that beautiful marble, the exquisite ornament, those gorgeous proportions, the graceful pointed dome, and um, the cusped arches, the curvilinear columns. And what I um, came to understand when I worked on the book was that there, one of the reasons why that particular image becomes so enduring is not only because it's kind of popularized in other form, but even just within architectural culture, what happens is that this style, which was at the time strongly associated with Shah Jahan, one particular emperor, gets taken up by subsequent emperors over the next uh, several decades. So prior to this moment, what you see actually is kind of constant change in a way in architectural style such that um, if you look at a series of Mughal tombs and you look at them kind of in chronological order, you see how each kind of grand imperial tomb does something new. But then in the mid-17th century, you start seeing actually um, some repetition. You see subsequent patrons, architects, buildings referencing the style which had been associated with just one emperor. So what was an imperial style ends up becoming a dynastic style. So that by the middle of the 18th century, you look at a building, you see its material, you see its forms, you see its decorative scheme, and you understand that's Mughal. Then what happens is that particular visual style ends up becoming identified more generally with royalty or with excellence. And so what was once 
an imperial style, becomes a dynastic style, becomes a kind of signal of royalty or luxury. And then the sort of fourth step in this process is that when that in a sense, the style gets exported. So then you have the Royal Pavilion at Brighton. Um, Brighton as in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. which is also um, built in, of course, it's, it is an adaptation, but again, you have this kind of basic language of pointed dome, cusp arches, um, baluster columns. So there are these kind of individual components that are put together in a different way, different material is used, different construction techniques are used, different technologies, but this kind of general picture then starts to become associated with Indian. So what was style associated with one particular emperor becomes associated with a dynasty, becomes associated with the idea of royalty, becomes associated with the very idea of India. And you certainly see um, echoes of that to the present day in everything from kind of ad campaigns to hotel architecture to also quite um, serious kind of um, architectural projects, and especially in the 19th century, which, which seek to kind of um, resurrect the idea of kind of Mughal greatness during national debates. So um, it's a really kind of interesting um, afterlife for what started out as a particular style associated with a particular emperor. Do you think at this point it's possible to disentangle the... Um, you know, the the technical and architectural virtuosity of the building, the Taj Mahal, which is spectacular from the greatness of Shah Jahan, or are these just of a a whole? You know, I think that um, they are of a whole, um, but I also think that in kind of the larger conversation about the Taj Mahal, you know, Shah Jahan also kind of gets lost. And the idea of this being an imperial monument and a funerary monument and... um, uh, Mughal monument kind of gets lost in the larger sort of romanticization around um, the Taj Mahal. So I think at this point, certainly, um, if you think about the Taj Mahal, you do um, think about Shah Jahan, but I think you also have, which is appropriate, but I think you also do have these other associations, um, you know, with the kind of romantic view of the Taj Mahal as well. So the way I would love if people thought about this building in relation to Shah Jahan and kind of imperial processes, but I don't know that that even happens. Well, it will now more, thanks to your book. <laughs> We've only just scratched the surface. The book is fantastic. It's beautifully illustrated. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you again for taking the time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. The book we've been discussing is titled From Stone to Paper, Architecture as History in the Late Mughal Empire. It is available now in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.